cruelty and infidelity. You son of a bitch! I believe! We're going back to the movies! 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 Movies! Hell! What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of Back to the Movies. I'm your host, Ben, and with me, as always, is my co-host... Nat McGee. Hey, Ben. How you doing today? Are we going to watch some more sequels this time around? <laughs> I'm doing great, because unlike the sequel Spectacular, which was a parade of disappointments, <laughs> I loved all of the movies we watched for today's episode. And yes, I said movies plural, but we should introduce the podcast and we should introduce the guests before we get into that. All right. The podcast is called Back to the Movies. The premise of the podcast is that Ben and I and our guests are going on a journey back to a certain year of cinema. In this case, it's our first season, and we are going back to the year 1990, which is 30 years ago from when we're recording this in 2020. We have a special guest with us today. He is a friend of mine, a future familial relationship of mine, mm. <laughs> and a professional voiceover artist and i think in this case it's a great person to have because we actually have some amazing voice recordings in these movies that we uh watched so oh. give it up for barrett letty what is up barrett hello hello nat hello ben i'm so glad to be on the program are we live on the radio let's go <laughs> <laughs> we're gonna have so many Funny little gags on this episode. Yeah, Just are we gonna wait. do? Barrett's gonna hit us with his best. When are we gonna do War of the Roses? That's right. what I. Oh, sorry. Okay. So our episode today is the horror sequel spectacular. Are do we have like a name for this episode? I don't want to just copy Sequel Spectacular. No, it's, it's not a Sequel Spectacular. We're only covering three movies. We've done that before. Um, yeah, it's just it's it's. Uh, I don't have a name for it. It's just the horror sequels. Trace horror movies. How about that? It's yeah, kinda... great. Um, how about like um. Like, hashtags Stanton Twins. Oh, my God. We're going to talk about the Stanton Twins, who are in the first movie that we're talking about, which is Gremlins 2. And we are also covering Exorcist 3. Yes. Does that have a subtitle, or is it just actually? Legion, sort of. We'll talk about it. And finally, we're covering Child's Play 2, which all came out in 1990. I actually did have a title for this episode looking at our schedule. It was Horror or Borer. Oh, horror or borer? That's awful. I love it. <laughs> it's really bad. Are, do you think these movies are boring? Is that well, why? Well, that was the question. Oh, okay. Interesting. I like it. Yeah, I like it. Yeah, I hardly know her. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> the gags. The gags are coming. Um, Barrett, why are you on this episode? Why, <laughs> why, why were you chosen for this episode? Do you know? Do you have any experience with these movies? Did Nat Not talk to you about it? Not for my expertise or prowess or for my intelligence or for my social skills that's for sure uh i mean i guess it's nepotism mm. yeah well look that's working hard for most of our guests at this point yeah um but do you have any history with these films or with the horror genre i do i have any history with the horror genre well um i like the strange horror films creature from the black lagoon um I, li I like a bunch of um, odd, you're offbeat kind of titles. I was, uh, for example, when we get into uh, talking about Gremlins 2, I'll be very interested to discuss uh, uh, the appearance of uh, Garrett Graham as uh, the father 
the foster father because he was in a uh, very um, uh, beloved film uh, called Phantom of the Paradise. Wait, is this Child's Play 2? Child's Play 2. Oh, excuse me. I'm sorry. Child's Play 2. But yes, we'll discuss that later. But yes, I I like the more obscure, the strange stuff. Well, then you must have been right at home with these movies because these were some of the weirdest movies I've ever seen in my life. (laughs) These are very odd. That's for sure. And and I it, they're the kind of movies that you watch, you enjoy, but you also I also found myself making comments out loud, not to anyone, <laughs> but just it, it, it they inspired such a visceral reaction from me. I've got to say watching these movies I kind of thought the universe was collapsing in on itself a little. Right. Bit. It, they, it's funny because we went on the sequel spectacular ride and it was about what I expected. It was trying to recapture the magic of the first good movie for right. all those movies we covered on that episode. We did like RoboCop 2, we did uh, Die Hard 2. But on this one, it seems like they had a little more freedom to get kind of creative with yeah. their sequelness. And I, it's kind of Absolutely. Cool. That was the thing that I found most refreshing because I was also a little bit worried to do another sequel episode after the um, uh, emotional strain of watching <laughs> five bad action movie sequels. Yeah, in a it, row. what I said during that episode was that my brain felt like it had melted. I had never watched <laughs> five sequels in a row like that before. And so I was a little concerned doing this again. I was cuz I haven't even seen the first Gremlins or the first Child's I, I Play. I have not seen the first Gremlins. I have not seen the first Child's Play. And Wait, I was like, okay, here we go. And you guys didn't watch them for this episode. You guys just watched the second movies? Oh, who has the time? Yeah, oh, well, I'm not going to watch the second. I'm only going to watch the ones I got to watch for the show, man. Yeah. Well, that's going to be a really interesting perspective. I think particularly for Gremlins 2, which is full of references and in-jokes about the first movie. Hey, we are here as that random guy that just walked into a movie theater, which is like most moviegoers, I think. They're just like, all right, I'll go see this. Isn't that what you want, that refreshing point of view? Definitely. Yeah. It'll be very interesting to hear what y'all think of that one in particular, but all of them in that with that context. Should we get right into Gremlins 2 then, since I think that's the one where that's going to be the most relevant? Sure. Neither of you had seen the first Gremlins movie. No. And presumably hadn't seen this either. I, I was aware of it. I I thought, though, I just kind of lumped it into those, like, 80s movies I'd get around to eventually. You know, I think of the 80s. I think I do think about things like RoboCop, as you mentioned, or the Goonies or something. And the, everything that kind of has that feel to it, that right. gritty, corny feel. But Gremlins was just one that has eluded uh, uh, me for, for years. You didn't deliberately avoid it, but you didn't go out of your way to see it. Right, right. Because I'm like, I would hear about gremlins. People talk about gremlins. And I think, <laughs> I think, well, what's so great about it? I don't have the urge to watch it until I had to watch gremlins too. Until it was homework. <laughs> until it was homework. So, yeah. That's always the right way to come into a movie, treating it as homework. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I don't know. Is the, have you been a fan of this of the franchise for a long while or or no? Yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, I I love the first movie. It's a, a perennial watch for me, particularly around Christmas time. Um, it really checks a lot of boxes. We talked about this a lot on the Arachnophobia episode, but I love horror and I love adventure films and I love Spielberg movies. I'm a big fan of Joe Dante, the director of the series. So they all kind of like coalesce in that movie, which is a really fun, surprisingly nasty little. Horror comedy. Did you even know about, like, the rules of the Gremlins, Barrett? Because I am vaguely aware. I've 
been no, soaking it in. Uh, I've and I've seen parts of Gremlins on TV when I was growing up, and like I, I definitely had a base familiarity of like the dude in the shop and the rules of the Gremlins. I definitely caught half of Gremlins when I was like, uh, ten uh, years old. Yeah, it's one of those ones that you you're always aware of. You have no knowledge of the inner workings of it, and I, I certainly, if there have been memes about it in the past, like ten years or so, those have also. Uh, uh, slipped under the radar for me because I was not aware of the rules. So you're walking in blind. I had a a little bit of a base context, which I think helped me out a lot. This is the idea that I had. This is like exactly, I'll give you exactly the idea I had of Gremlins. Okay. I thought Gremlins. It's that kooky movie about the little creatures. They (laughs) They come alive. They cause a ruckus. They probably murder people, maybe. And uh, they are, like, kooky, and they speak, like, a different language or something. That's what I thought initially. Hey, I think you have about 85, 90, 95% of it right, right there. I think yeah. you're good to go. <laughs> yeah. I'm just watching Ben cringe on the video. It's that's so not fun. how it was sold to me, but I guess that's how I've been selling it to other people. Anyway, Ben, tell us a little bit about Gremlins from the expert's point of view. I don't know. I feel like I covered the bases uh, with just, like, my personal connection to it it was a very very successful film very popular launched joe dante's career uh, in a big way was a, a a feather in the cap of spielberg as he was moving more into the producer role in the 80s um it was a big hit and we should i guess talk about the production history a little bit of this specific film and how it relates to that first one but i don't have that much to say about the first one other than it's great and people liked it mm. so of course Right away, the studio wants a sequel. What's the most pleasant memory you have of the first one? If you could just sum up, a lot of times if you think back to a film, you're like, oh, you, you think of that one specific aspect of it. For me, it's, it's and then again, this isn't the first movie, which you guys haven't seen. Uh, it ends with a showdown in a hardware store, and it's Gizmo and Zach Galligan and Phoebe Cates uh, uh, facing off against the Gremlins, and Gizmo finds himself an RC car, that he drives around the hardware store. And uh, I can remember that like shot of the camera right in front of him as he whizzes past the shelves and just like how joyful that makes me. And you like that because of the lack of representation of hardware stores in film, right? Uh, pretty much exactly. Well, okay. and the lack of representation for small town Americana, which <laughs> I feel a tremendous personal connection to growing up in a small town myself. Which is entirely thrown out. And we go to right. Trump's New York City yeah. in the second movie. As Ben, as Ben was saying to me right before this call, build that wall. But anyway, <laughs> all right, all right. we're cutting right. that one out. All right, uh, more editing for Ben. Yay! Six years pass, right? Eighty-four to nineteen ninety. Yeah. So they want a sequel, but Dante doesn't want to do it. So let's talk about Joe Dante for a second, uh, the director of this film. I think a really great director, although he's always made lean more towards like a, a B movies and horror films and schlockier films. So he never really has had a, a tremendous amount of mainstream success outside of maybe the first gremlins. He starts as a Corman filmmaker. We talked about Roger Corman earlier when we were talking about who, what, what episode was that on? Do you remember that? Miami blues maybe? Yeah. Cause we were talking about uh, Jonathan Demi and his influence on that film. And, and, and the director of that movie also started in the Corman camp. And after making a bunch of films for Corman, Dante makes a movie called the howling, which is an excellent werewolf movie, and that really gets him into the A-list. He then uh, directs one of the sequences in the Twilight Zone movie, 
which puts him in contact with Spielberg, which then, of course, leads to Gremlins, which is a huge hit. But Dante isn't interested in a sequel. He's got other projects he wants to work on. In the interim, he does Inner Space, which is a bit of a disappointment, but was still a pretty successful and, and uh, well-liked film at the time. Yeah. And Warner Brothers is trying to find someone else to make the movie. They can't find anybody. It's so much Dante's specific project that they go back to him. They say, we need the sequel. We want the sequel. We will give you complete creative freedom Wow! on this movie. You can do whatever you want. And we're going to give you triple the budget you had on the first film. That's a nice offer. And yeah, so Dante's like, well, you know what? I bet I could come up with something under those circumstances. And the result is one of the weirdest, most esoteric, one of the most like personal blockbuster sequels ever made. I couldn't believe my eyes with this movie. It was unreal. I couldn't believe that of all the movies we've watched, the most avant-garde and meta movie was Gremlins 2. How did that happen? It became like a Buñuel movie. <laughs> well, do you, what I, ben, you seem to be quite an expert on Gremlins. Do you think that for Joe Dante, he, he kind of, to him, it was like a fluke for him that this thing took off? Or do you think he kind of felt it going through? You know what I mean? Like, what, was that clear from the beginning? You mean the success of Gremlins the in the first place? The success of the first Gremlins to launch a whole... He's had plenty of successful films, none nearly at that level. But I don't I don't think he would have believed it was a fluke. I think he certainly thought he was in that pocket. But he always has had this very interesting dichotomy where he has Spielberg's tendency to make these like very trackable, family-friendly adventure movies. Like uh, very uh, um, much in that Spielberg camp of like clear cinematic language and a uh, sense of story, all that stuff that made Spielberg so popular. Right. But he's weirder than Spielberg by major degrees. He's also got this like Tim Burton side to him where he's obsessed with old schlocky B movies and uh, like TV shows that play horror films late at night <laughs> and all kinds of weird stuff that is warring in his mind with that like sort of more commercial sensibility. And I think he just saw the opportunity here to, to, to go in the other direction, to not be bound by the concerns of what the audience might want or might think about what he did and just be as creative and uh, inventive as he could possibly be. Yeah. It's amazing what he did in this movie. Yeah. Should we, let's just go through the movie and we can talk about some of the other collaborators as we do. The movie has a crazy opening, right? I actually don't even remember what the opening is. It was the first one I watched. It's the Looney Tunes short. Oh, basically. right. That threw me off. I was like, wait, did I click the right thing? You're coming in to the sequel to a movie where a bunch of little monsters kill people in a small town in America. And the first thing that happens is Bugs Bunny and Daffy Duck arguing <laughs> over who gets to ride the Warner Brothers shield. Yeah, it, it actually did a great job of establishing what kind of movie we were getting into, though, because... It really did make me think throughout the rest of the movie, like, okay, this is kind of like a cartoon. Like, I'm not going to take any of this actually seriously at all. Absolutely. In the, in the same way that I would take something like E.T. kind of seriously or, you know, any of those other Spielberg ventures. I mean, it's a very different movie if you just start with Mr. Wing and Gizmo in the shop or even with Billy and Kate in the city. If you don't have that, like, little bit of, like, a warning before the like, episode. This going to be weird. But why do it? Really weird. But why do it? That's my question. I, I was watching it. I was like, this is interesting. It felt, you know, it's like 
something now that we, you know you go see a Pixar movie you expect to see something beforehand but, but like with this one you're like what is this why did they do it I think Dante just loved the Looney Tunes sure well I'm also saying I thought they did it to establish how cartoony this was gonna be it definitely works to that regard there would have been other ways to do that without actually having iconic cartoon characters in your movie to me it was just sort of saying hey guys this movie's gonna be a little out there you're in for something strange so in the first cut there's actually a much longer exchange between the two of them oh god where they argue over what the title of the movie should be as well but the test audiences felt like that was too much oh (laughs) not too much I just love the idea of test audiences trying to watch this movie and give, like, cinema scores and feedback. Right, what, yeah. what authority. This is a work of art that cannot be test audience. <laughs> Can we talk about the score, too, during this sweeping uh, uh, helicopter shot through New York City? That shot was awesome. I just wanted to mention that shot it's was a amazing. great shot. Could you do that today? Could you fly a helicopter that close to those buildings? I don't know. I, I'm not familiar with the aviation laws in new york city but i (laughs) maybe if you had enough money i have no idea they would use a drone now though for sure yeah well the score was written by jerry goldsmith who also did total recall this year which another score i really love goldsmith hugely hugely prolific uh uh, composer for films i think his gremlins theme that theme that gizmo hums is probably one of his most recognizable pieces of music that he's written and he actually quotes it in a lot of his own scores later on like towards the end of his career so he probably feels the same way Oh, I want to say just quickly, this is the first appearance of the Looney Tunes characters following the passing of Mel Blanc, and mm. Jeff Bergman voices Bugs, Daffy, and Porky Pig in the film. So, when did Porky Pig show up? Was he even there? Maybe he's in the he credits in the at the end. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, all right, I, I glazed this one, yeah. guys. Uh, <laughs> okay, we've got our cartoon opening, and we cut to Mr. Wing, the caretaker of the Mogwai, of Gizmo, in his shop in Chinatown. Um, And he is approached by Robert Picardo, who was the Johnny Cab in Total Recall, Nat, if you remember that. Oh, yeah, that guy. Who puts a TV on his desk, and we see John Glover as our Donald Trump-Ted Turner hybrid, Clamp. Daniel Clamp. Making an offer on the shop. I just wanted to mention another moment where a guy plays a video recording of himself to people. This was huge <laughs> in 1990. People it really loved was. It. We got to bring it back. It's amazing. Well, it goes along with like, you know, video dating, you know. Right. I just love I love business proposals via VHS tape on a TV that you specifically brought just for that. And I love it when they're like you can keep the TV. I think the last time when, the last time we saw that was The Dark Knight. Oh, well, yeah. he was live, oh, that's though. True. He that's was true. live. Yeah. I'm talking about a pre-recorded. You're like, hi, yes. this is me. I just want to mention something to you. Endgame. <laughs> Avengers Endgame. Okay. End I of like the movie. That. I don't count it if they're dead. Are they oh, dead? Oh, okay. okay. They have, they to, have to still yeah, be alive. Dead. Yeah, no. Yeah. If they're dead, then that's that makes sense why they're doing it. But if they're, if they're still alive, they couldn't make a trip, <laughs> but they wanted to make a good impression. Video. What a fun little pre-recorded. Motif. Here's the thing about it in this movie. It actually makes more sense because Gremlins is inherently about technology. Yes. Like that's where the concept of the monsters come from in the first place. You know, Gremlins was a term that was coined during World War II when airplanes would fail. The aviators would say there were Gremlins in the plane. Like that's where that comes from. So there's always a close relationship between technology and these monsters. So even though the movie doesn't hit it very hard, the fact that Clamp is obsessed with technology and using technology is a big part of 
why the gremlins are a good fit to kind of tear down his fortress. Mm. So they put an offer in. The guy refuses, but then he conveniently just dies. I guess they just needed to get him in there for five minutes. I think it's all just connecting this to the first movie. Uh, it, this feels very, like, housekeeping to me. How does scene. he die again? They just said he's sick. He He's sick. He he's had a cough, sick. and they're like, he's going to die soon anyway. It's fine. <laughs> so, yeah, they're right. Good. Just wait. Yeah. I guess it would have been a little too convenient to just have the gizmo in some weird lab randomly they had to give a reason right. to be there yeah. so they had to do this chinatown thing and also this movie is weirdly into torturing gizmo emotionally and physically <laughs> it is i felt terrible terrible and that starts with mr wing's death he yeah, looks the so first sad. time we actually see gizmo's face he is heartbroken he looks so sad yeah although at the same time I kept him in a cage. He did. Yeah. A little messed and up. Not a big one. <laughs> a tiny one. Tiny cage. Yeah. yeah, the whole gizmo becoming Rambo was really weird, but yeah. I'm there for it. It's strange, but it's, I'm there. Okay. You mentioned that gizmo gets captured. You guys want to just get into this thing about the twins now? I, I would love to get into the, the Stanton twins. <laughs> yeah, what, I don't what know do you where you guys are going with this. You're going to have to uh, illuminate I, me. There's some... Every now and then you just come across something in in film or some whatever or actors or something. You get sucked into this in, into this rabbit hole. For example, there's an actor in the first Star Trek movie whose name his stage name at least is Gary Seven. And I spent a good 20 minutes like one time looking him up and I just thought that was stupid. Um but the Stanton brothers First of all, their URL is no longer. I, if I, in a pinch, if I could have found the Stanton brothers, I would have brought them on as a surprise. But the <laughs> fact that they were like booking, they were trying to market themselves as this duo for years. How often do I don't know if that hurt them or helped them? Because how often does a film need these two ginger twins? You know, like our, I honestly thought it was one actor giving like a like a blue screen <laughs> like a performance, Lindsay Lohan. like a composite performance. Yeah. yeah, yeah. They're one of those acts where they are in this. They're together in every movie, right? Yeah. What else are they in? Looney Tunes back in action. Another Joe Dante film. Yeah, they are friends with Joe Dante. Are they in anything else? They are in um, just a bunch of random things. But but sometimes they appear separately. Sometimes they oh. appear together. Are we sure they appear separately? Is it the same one in every scene? <laughs> it might or... be the same guy. They were very gimmicky to me, but also another sort of clue that this movie is on a different level than a normal movie. I like the joke where uh, Christopher Lee's like talking about cloning and then they turn around and they're the same. Like that's that was a funny joke. Yeah, that's a that's a perfectly fine joke. It's the sort of like the whole aura of the Stanton twins. I was kind of <laughs> like, oh. So the Stanton twins, I want to talk a little more about them. I'm wondering, if you're writing a script, what I thought was, look, they're going to have some geeky, Igor, scientist, sidekick guy coming in here for Christopher Lee. Now, I'm wondering if the part started out as twins. That is very specific. That is a very specific choice. Or did both brothers come in to audition as a duo and they thought, hold on. Rather than just one wacky sidekick, why don't we just have these two geekazoid brothers? Uh, who, you know what I mean? Like, I, it's like, a, it's a, it's a really well-known secret in Hollywood that you can actually twin any role that you want. All you have to do is change the script so that there's twins, and they just alternate lines, 
And you can make anyone. You could make Michael Corleone a twin. You could make <laughs> you could make Scarlett O'Hara twins. Scarlett and uh, Dengue right. O'Hara. Uh, Dengue? <laughs> What'd you just say? Dengue, like Dengue fever. Scarlet oh, I may have been Dengue like that. Oh, uh, I was, going, on your I was trying to think of another term for red, like Scarlet and Crimson. But okay. you wanted to go with you wanted to go with you know, viral plagues in this. I wonder why. Climate. So, uh, yeah, I think that what happened was they needed a nerd and the Stanton twins were wheeling and dealing around Hollywood. And they're like, guys, put us in your movie. We're the Stanton twins. We add 2% market share to your value of this movie. And they were like, yeah, throw them in there. It's great. Twin. Everyone loves twins. Oh my God. Of course. Terminator two. Oh yeah. Yes. I was going to mention Terminator two. Of course. I didn't even recognize him because he looks pretty different in that movie. Uh, like they dye his hair black. Stop saying he. That. It's two people. Well, you're right, but in that movie, it's it's uh, uh, supposed to be one, and then it's the T1000 mimicking him, <laughs> and that's how they pull that off. Oh, so they oh. use them for an actual twin thing. Yeah, uh, he's 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 the guard in uh, the, um, the mental facility. They must be so pissed off about David Fincher ruining their careers by doing. Arnie Hammer as twins. It's just like you're right. You, they you were the need, next choice for the Wicked Boss twins. Now we've got <laughs> Mark Ruffalo in that miniseries I mentioned on Arachnophobia. He's playing twins. Like now it's easy. Now anyone can. Do you be think twins. they saw the Parent Trap, Lindsay? They definitely were next in line Shit. for the Parent Trap. <laughs> oh God. Okay, we have definitely talked about the stand twins. Oh, I had more, but oh, oh sure, sure. Okay. <laughs> it's been thirty minutes, so we haven't even talked about our main characters yet. We got the twins, we got the lab, and we got the main characters. We have boy and girl, Phoebe Cates and Guy. <laughs> I don't know his name. Zach, Zach Galligan. Zach Galligan. That guy, what happened to him? Uh, he gets stuck in B-movie mode, and he never really mm. breaks out in the mainstream. Yeah, they're they're young and in the city, and they're working for the man at the Clamp building. Right. He's a drawer, and she is a tour guide. I'd say this. The movie does a pretty good job of grabbing these two characters who I wasn't that familiar with because I didn't see Gremlins 1 and sort of establishing them from the first movie into this new world because they've clearly changed the entire world of the movie. So they're now in this city thing with this crazy tech guy. And I think it works pretty well. They establish the whole dynamic of Clamp's empire and how they fit into it pretty easily. Do we want to talk about Clamp now? Because we get the scene of them walking the street, but then almost immediately transition to the introduction of our main setting, which is the Clamp building. All right. So, yeah, let's talk about Clamp. He is, like you said, sort of a composite of Trump and Ted Turner. And weirdly, like, tech people from now almost. I was getting a lot of, like, <laughs> Elon Musk vibes. <laughs> he does have that kind of vibe. He used yeah. to make himself the hero. I think... His mannerisms are patterned pretty closely to Ted Turner's. Mm -hmm. Like he's way more Turner than Trump, except for the big gaudy building, the name, and like the visual look. And the book too. He's got a the total book, part him of the deal the, thing. Yeah. Yeah, it's I it's really funny to watch all of these movies in a row from nineteen ninety, just because you start to see like that there there was a very there were very defined things in culture and i don't even know if you get that with movies now just because i feel like there's a broader spectrum of movies sure. beyond just like the biggest movies out there but it was funny just to see like it's kind of a culmination in all of this yuppie stuff that we've seen and we've seen a lot of like trump-esque stuff like and this was sort of 
an amazing meta version of all that. You have so. to like put it in perspective. I had to really put it in perspective of the time to not think, oh, they're doing a Trump thing. To to think, you know what I mean? To like to think that okay, but then Trump was this Trump and not Trump now. I I, the idea of casting the Trump character as sort of like a hapless, uh, but good-hearted buffoon is so weird. The actor is John Glover, who plays him. Uh, I don't know if y'all watched Smallville back I when we were teenagers. Batman the Animated Series. Yeah, that's where I was going next. Uh, he's the Riddler on Batman the Animated Series. Great, great performance. The Minotaur. Don't forget the Hand of Fate. In the maze. And he also plays um the scientist who creates Bane in Batman and Robin with uh, uh, Uma Thurman. And Ooh, I remember that. Yes. He got messed up by Bane. <laughs> it's very strange. It's another one of these roles, sort of like in RoboCop 2, where for a lot of the movie, you don't know if he's a good guy or bad guy. I felt the same way about the CEO in RoboCop 2, yes. which is kind of funny because it's such a similar vibe. Yeah. Very and much. for the first, like, three quarters of this movie, you're like, when is Clamp going to betray everybody? When is he going to leave Phoebe Cates in the lurch and try to fly off in his helicopter and then get killed by the gremlins? But <laughs> Clamp pulls through. He is yes. a pretty well, good dude by the end. He, he, he pulls through only in as much as it lets him be, like, the hero. Like, yeah. He, he doesn't deliberately betray anyone, but he is totally useless throughout the entire movie. I think it's a very different time because I think the fact that you're an unabashed capitalist in 1990 isn't a bad thing. It's just part of who you are. And maybe you'll end up doing some good in the world. Who knows? Yeah, this, I, this movie has absolutely no respect for Clamp. It doesn't think Clamp is a good guy or a hero. It th he slips as he's leading the SWAT team into the building <laughs> yeah, at the he's end. A buffoon, he's an but idiot. He's still a lovable no, yeah, buffoon. He's a, he's he a, is a little lovable. Yeah. And actually, in the original script, he was the villain. Okay. But when John Glover was cast, they went in a different direction. Got it. He's okay. your Gilderoy Lockhart. <laughs> he has some Gilderoy Lockhart. Even Lockhart, Lockhart though, was kind of an asshole in the end and got what was coming to him. But Clamp, you know, he's he's there. He's ready to do the plan, and you know, he gives everyone promotions at the end. And he's a good guy. You know who originally was going to play Gilderoy Lockhart? Who? It was actually going to be a joint role. The Stanton twins. Were... No, I'm kidding. Uh, okay, go on, go on, go on. Great, great, good. <laughs> okay, so <laughs> while we are touring the building, which is going to become important once the gremlins start wreaking havoc, we're also meeting most of our supporting characters. So we've got Marla Bloodstone, played by Haviland Morris from 16 Candles. Uh, this is probably her only other major credit that I really saw. Um, really bad. Really bad. Oh, I thought she was perfectly fine in what the like where the movie wants this character. This is your, your, your redhead? Woman? That yes. accent is the worst Awful. accent I've ever heard in a movie. That hey is terrible. There, how you accent. Doing? What yeah. was that? Miss Fran Drescher Smith. meets the Queen. Fran I couldn't tell. <laughs> hell, yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, Mister Clamp's gonna recognize the original. Oh, what was that, man? Not acting. And we meet Grandpa Fred, played by Robert Prosky, the prolific character actor Robert Prosky. Big fan of his. That was where I was most like, oh, geez, we're going back to the first movie. I can't follow any of this. Hey, I was like, who is this guy? No, no, Grandpa Fred is uh, the 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 sh host of the the horror TV oh, show. Oh, that guy. I thought yeah. you were talking about the guy who visits. I thought that was the Munsters guy. Um, I He's supposed to look like the Munsters uh, guy. I thought that was him. But did you notice the great cameo by Mr. John Astin, uh, Gomez, yep. uh, yeah, Adams? 
He oh. plays the the janitor. He's repairing the the water fountain. Yes. Uh, lots of cameos in this movie. Very lots many. of cameos, including Joe Dante himself, who's the director of of Grandpa Fred's TV show. Yes, mm. and Julia Sweeney as a uh, uh, Peggy. Mister, I believe she is Mister Clint. No, or she's Christopher Lee's assistant. Uh, sure. Yeah. Yes. Who's got the cold? Yes. The cold. Uh, let's talk about Christopher Lee as Doctor Catheter. What a name. Let's talk about Christopher <laughs> Lee. Christopher Lee. It's 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 movies like this, and also let's not forget Christopher Lee was the main antagonist in a Police Academy Six Mission to Moscow. I'm wondering before Lord of the Rings, after like Dracula, before Lord of the Rings, you gotta wonder about and Star Wars. You gotta wonder about Christopher Lee. You're like, what's Christopher Lee doing in this shit part? You know what I mean, like. I mean, let's be real. I mean, Christopher Lee well, is considered a great actor. Well, but to be fair, it's actor. not like the Hammer horror films were considered, like, high art at the time. No, He was but... always kind of, uh, you know, a, a schlocky movie actor. Right. But people recognized that he was really this, this really unique presence. So that by the time the filmmakers who had watched him in those Hammer horror films got to make their own movies, they sort of reclaimed his career right at the end. He certainly had some films that elevated beyond that before then i think the wicker man is probably the one that comes to the mind first obviously he was in man with the golden gun the james bond film but for the most part he was in like cheesy horror movies and stuff like like that this is probably one of the higher profile projects he had in the years surrounding that like breaks my heart in a way i don't feel like a shakespearean actor or something he's kind of a flocky actor what here's here's my thing i think lord of the rings is kind of schlocky and that's what makes it so great they kind of took a lot of schlock because you saw the movies Peter Jackson sure. made before Lord of the yeah. Rings. They're fucking nuts, and they they brought Lord of the Rings into that world of like sure sort of kind of schlockiness. So I it's think very it heightened. Right yeah. yeah, and it's kind of like this movie in a way. Well, it's nothing like this movie. <laughs> <laughs> it is though. There's a little bit of winking going on. Lord of the Rings isn't like this super self serious. I don't know like, how much winking is in Lord of the Rings. There's a lot of winking. I think that there is some stylistic winking, but narratively there is no winking, and there's a ton of winking in this movie. Maybe in the this movie's all edition. winks. Yes. This movie has a, an eye twitch. Okay, whatever. Can we talk about Christopher Lee's entrance into this movie, which one of my favorite parts of the film? He walks in, his assistant is sick, he, he gets a box, and he's hoping that it is a, a, like a rare disease, and it turns out it's just the flu. And he's really upset about it. And then he takes his assistant's tissue that she just sneezed in. Everything about it was great. Like his delivery, yes. the walk and talk, I loved it. It's a triggering scene in 2020. <laughs> uh, <laughs> just kidding. Uh, yeah, it's it's cool. But I think we got to tie it all in. We got to tie it all together. There's so many different actors and they're building this world that's really effective. And let's get to the main event. They find the Mogwai. What's his face? Zach Galligan goes into the lab because he figures out somehow that Gizmo's in there. and The song. Yeah, the song. And he lets him free, and shit hits the fan when Gizmo's supposed to get picked up because there's a date, blah, 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 blah. The gremlins are released into the building. And now there's multiple gremlins. There's crazy gremlin. There's evil gremlin. There's cross-eyed gremlin. And they're just causing mischief. And now we're getting into really cartoony cartoon land we're starting to hear like boinks on the on the audio track <laughs> we're starting to see some weird things because so far what? since the looney tunes the movie's kind of kept a sheen on everything of like yes 
normal respectability for this kind of movie. But now the gloves are coming off a little bit. It, it's But it's sort of like a tease because it's going to get so much crazier in just a few minutes. Yeah. When we first meet the other Mogwai that, that, that arrive, like they're a little bit colorful, but they are not Miss Gremlina. Yeah, or the intellectual gremlin. Or brain gremlin. Favorite. So yeah, they are causing general mischief. Do they kill anyone? They kill some people, right? I don't think they yes. kill anyone until they turn evil. Oh yeah, that's what I meant. I'm, I'm at that yeah. point now. They're evil. We well, I want to talk about Rick Baker for a second. Okay. The first Gremlins movie, the, the Gremlin effects are done by a really great effects artist named Chris Wallace, who had been on the effects team for Return of the Jedi, E.T., Raiders of the Lost Ark, Scanners... But because of the delay between Gremlins 1 and 2, by the time Gremlins 2 comes out, he's no longer an effects guy. He's transitioned to be a director. He just directed The Fly 2 in 89. So they have to find somebody else to come in and do the effects. And obviously this is an extremely effects-heavy film because it's almost all puppets and animatronics uh, for the Gremlin characters, which are most of the characters in the movie. So they need to find somebody to replace him, and they go with Rick Baker, which is sort of like you know, losing a $10 bill and finding a hundred Rick Baker is one of like maybe the three greatest effects artists in Hollywood history and cool. is probably the best possible person they could have had, except maybe Stan Winston himself to uh, replace Chris Wallace, who's also very talented, but uh, just isn't on that level. And I got to say, even though like, again, the designs are very colorful and over the top, the effects work in this movie is phenomenal. The yeah. Gremlin characters are like absolutely coherent and believable as characters. You almost immediately stop seeing the puppets. Yeah, and just those shots of the hundreds of Gremlins. It's unbelievable what you're seeing. Just that level of detail with so many different designs of Gremlins and just it's amazing. And a huge leap from the first movie where there's like four or five. It's so cool that what is this Warner Brothers? Just gave yes. them a blank check to just do or three yeah. times the budget of the first movie and just do whatever you want. Like you really it's amazing what happened here. And it, it speaks to like beyond indie filmmaking, like you can do weird, crazy, out of the box stuff in a huge budget environment. You just need the freedom to be able to do it. Yeah. As long as you make a hit film and then hold out to get complete creative freedom. Yeah. And leave enough budget to hire the Stanton. <laughs> yes. Yeah. That's the key. So the gremlins cool. turn evil. They Can we talk fed. about all the weird, crazy, evil gremlins? <laughs> I mean, there's, sure. there's obviously Brain Gremlin and... Voiced by Tony Randall. Yeah, that was pretty amazing. It, it, it was This was when I was like, the universe is collapsing in on itself. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. It's amazing. I mean, the whole last 45 minutes, like the last half of this movie, is just mostly unstructured mayhem starring a parade of... Of colorful gremlins. And it's great because things just stop mattering. The movie <laughs> stops at one point and the film burns away and they cut away. It's super yeah. out there. There's like a fourth wall breaking scene when the gremlins destroy the movie that you're watching and Hulk Hogan has to tell them to turn the movie back on. Yeah. It, I don't know if that, how that played back in 1990. Greatly, probably. Where people... I actually have some info about that. The studio didn't want it in there. And and uh, Dante said, give me one test audience. And he said it was the highest testing scene in the whole movie. People loved it. Yeah, it's a great scene. It's just so different from anything you would expect from a sequel movie like this. And you see, that right. is full of jokes to the first movie because 
the uh, the the woman with her son and the 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 theater owner are from the first film. Oh. And the joke that the gremlins want to watch Snow White in the first movie, they take over a movie theater that's showing Snow White. <laughs> like it's oh. all references to that. There's so many levels to this. <laughs> a lot of levels. So yeah, I it, it, it sort of goes against the whole idea of this movie to try to like structure it out. Basically it just turns yeah. into the two the couple has to figure out a way to get all the gremlins exposed to sunlight more or less. And mm-hmm. she's trapped in the elevator and the kid is, he's like running around and messing with the secretary or the, his boss lady. It's, and I can't even keep track of what was going on. None of it matters. And the movie knows none of it matters, which is the best part. I, I want to shout out a couple of things. Um, I want to shout out uh, Mr. Katsuji, who is played by Getty Watanabe, who, if you, there was a, like a crappy stereotyped Asian character in a Hollywood movie, he was there killing that supporting role performance for about two decades. It started in 16 Candles, where he plays the exchange student, which he's great in, and a highly, highly underrated actor, who I thought was very fun in this movie, even though he was playing a really bad stereotype. Yeah, there's that whole subplot where the guy wants to be a news anchor. But it, even that goes to crazy levels because he's already in the vampire outfit. And, and then he's hiding in a trash can yeah. reporting on a mob of gremlins singing New York, New York it's in the lobby so, of the clamp building. It's so strange <laughs> and wonderful that they just let this happen. It's a disaster. It's almost like the gremlins actually took over the movie. That's a good way of thinking about it. Yeah. So, and then they all die. <laughs> we got to keep going. They all yeah, die. You're right. uh, they uh, have all you guys seen die. the Key and Peele sketch where they talk about the making of this movie? No. It's great. No. You should definitely check it out. Listeners, you should too. Very funny. Um, but where they just, this movie is, honestly, if you haven't seen it and we tried to describe what happened, you would think we were making it up. Yeah. There is so much absurdity that happens in the second half of this movie. There's musical numbers. There's exploding gremlins. There's electricity There's gremlins. Multiple references to different movies. There's a spoof of Fan of the Opera and uh, Wizard of Oz and like weird references that are just being played out with gremlin actors. And it's wonderful. And it, it almost redeemed like the Amblin name for me because I was <laughs> the Amblin name was pretty sullied by arachnophobia for me. And I, for this, I was kind of like, wow, okay. They do get it. They are just having a good time. They're not just trying to make money here. They're actually trying to comment on cinema, and they're trying to do something different and creative. So good on you, Dante. You saved us. Barrett, did you have a favorite gag or moment in the second half of this movie in the mayhem section? Oh, I mean, oh, man, just this singing of this. The, the, when you break into song, I know you discussed it already, but when you when you break into a New York, New York or something like that, I mean, even the last scene with, like, the guy has kisses all over his face. <laughs> that was... You know, like, that's just such a strange. ridiculous moment. And you're like, oh my God. I gotta say, I felt pretty bad for the gremlins by the end. Because they had a spokesman who was being very eloquent. And he didn't... All we want is civilization. He didn't have any terrible... Ar- he shot a guy. He did shoot another gremlin. That's true. But that gremlin was not a cogent gremlin. That was just a pest. He's the next... So what? He shot a guy on TV. He's the next level of gremlin. He's like the next evolution of them. And he's saying, like, we don't want to... We just want a civilization like humans do. We shoot shoot monkeys, don't we? 
Uh, there's no, there's just no consistency across the board with this movement of the gremlins. It's true. So they need to die. They need to be killed, and they get they get killed, and that's the end of the movie. Right. And it's like the Antifa of the gremlins. <laughs> Again, now we cut out. I'm partial to the Leonard Maltin gag, oh, where because yeah. he was a, a big detractor of the first film, and it was a great sport to come into this movie where he just gets murdered by the gremlins. But I loved like his fake movie reporting TV show. Because that was like exactly what those were like at that time. Movie police. <laughs> I just loved what this movie was doing. And I don't even know how much I actually liked the movie itself, but I loved what it was doing. So for that, I give it a love. Yeah, it's just, if you can get on its wavelength, there really is no other like major Hollywood movie that's anything like it. And people are going to try to tell you like, oh, Guardians of the Galaxy, like Thor Ragnarok or whatever. It's like, nah, man. No, nowhere Close. Don't even get close. Yuck. Nowhere close to this. So yeah, welcome to Mooseport. Well, yeah, and welcome. <laughs> uh, I would watch a Taika Waititi Gremlins movie though, dude. But it's never gonna be like this. It's Why? never gonna be like this. This is just unabashed. There's there's no rules on this one. It's amazing. It's also that gritty '80s New York that you just can't. You never can recapture that. True. So let's get into the legacy. Uh, okay, so box office. This movie had a budget of $50 million, which is really big, especially for that time. It opens on June 15th to $9.7 million Ooh. and only goes on to gross $41 million domestic total. Whoa, it was a bomb? It was a huge bomb. I for what the studio that. probably expected to be one of the highest grossing films of the year, it was a disaster. Why did that happen? Because uh, they made a $50 million movie where a gremlin sings New York, New York. <laughs> and another one turns into a collection of vegetables. Yeah, like, but do you ever wonder if it was the timing? If it was something about the year it was released? I don't know. I, I think 41 is a great total for a movie as weird as this. It's true. It's an art film. It's honestly an art film. It It is weirder than a lot of the weird yes. art films I've seen on Criterion yes. Collection. It's like Dead Man. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I should put it in context. 41 is still a very respectable gross, and uh, sure. we can play the ranking game. Like it, it is the highest grossing of, of the films that we watched this week, I believe, <laughs> and by a, a, a significant it? margin. Wow. Um, really? But it was so expensive, and expectations were so high that it was a pretty major disappointment. Hmm. Do you find, did you find that the two leads were weak leads? Yes. Zach Galligan, as much as I love him because of the first film, where he's sort of better suited because he is um, basically just asked to be the square in relation to all the chaos that's happening around him, right, is not well suited to being this sort of more proactive action hero that he is in this movie. Does he need to be an action hero? Don't you think if they had gone with like an Anthony Michael Hall or someone like a little more... A little more traditionally nerdy or awkward to be the the guy. Like, yeah. don't you, I don't know. There's something about Zach. He's just a little milk toast. Yeah. I and like Phoebe, Phoebe Cates though. I think she's really great in this movie, and I I think she was a pretty great actress. I'm sorry that she retires basically uh, just a few years after this movie comes out. They didn't give her enough to do in this movie though. She she, no. she should have been like the star of this movie. Honestly, I thought she was pretty funny when the tour started going wrong though. Why does she hold on to the tour? Like, as soon as things are going horribly wrong, who's the who's Getty Watanabe? Um, uh, Mr. Kat, Katsuji. Mr. Katsuji. He's she's like no, Mr. Katsuji. No, and I'm like, <laughs> do you, and I'm thinking, people are dying here, and you you care about the tour? 
What are you doing? Well, you Take know, that hat she off. knows the clamp organization is really finicky about all the rules, so she's got to just keep going. She sees creatures in the building. I love those hats, too. The hats With the building cool. on the hat. hats stink. All right. All right. We're moving on to the next movie. We got to keep going. <laughs> we got to keep going. Okay. Next movie is Exorcist 3. Exorcist 3. Next film to be Let's released. My God. What a gear shift. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, seriously. This is probably the hardest uh, 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 turn that this we could different. have in this episode. Yeah. I have seen The Exorcist 1. I have not seen The Exorcist 2, which I read has nothing to do with this movie, so I felt prepared for yeah. this one. Exorcist 2 is one of the worst films ever made. <laughs> yeah. Great. I'm glad I'm never going to watch it. Barrett, how about you? Have you seen Exorcist? I've seen the first film, and I've seen this one now. I've not seen two. You guys didn't see the, the Rennie Harlan one, Exorcist the Beginning, the Father Marin origin story? Hell no. no. I, I kind of like that movie. I, I love an exorcism movie. I've, I've seen quite a few. I'm a, a little bit of a, a connoisseur. It's just they did it so... It's one of these where, you know, look, you can, and you could say that. It's cliche to say that about anything. But when you do it so right the first time around, it almost is like by number three... It, it's refreshing because number two is I've not seen, but from what I can gather, it just seems like uninspired. And then when three comes around, it seems a little more fresh. I'm sort of I'm, I'm a similar opinion. Like I'm not that into exorcism movies because I just feel like Exorcist did it perfectly. And like, right. where else are you gonna go with it? Isn't what do you build? I on? haven't watched a lot of exorcism movies. Is it always just oh, I think they're possessed? Okay, at the end of the movie, we got to get rid of the ex the demon in them. You know, you have different perspectives you can look at. The Exorcist is the movie about mostly about the mom witnessing what's happening. And we get a, a fair amount of Father Karras as well in that movie. But the main character is Reagan's mother. But there's also excellent exorcism films that are from the perspective of the exorcist themselves grappling with the doubt and the moral quandaries involved with prescribing this remedy to somebody who may be suffering from a different ailment. Mm. Uh, a great one of that is Exorcism of Emily Rose, uh, which might be one of my in my like top four or five exorcism films. Um, that's all about that that perspective. A very different movie because of it. And then, are there other versions of this exorcism thing, or is that yeah? We you have can some do... from the point of view of the demon. I want to see that. Well, one. no, but like you can like you know change the 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 relationships and the dynamics <laughs> of of the characters. I don't know, like it's. What what an exorcism? So it's just a different perspective. What an exorcism it's, gives you is, uh, um, like a framework, both narratively and with iconography, that you can really do a lot of interesting stuff with if you're willing to twist it and turn it and play with it in different ways. Right. Well, let's talk about Exorcist Three. I was going to say you guys both seem to think that this was a, a, a at least a slight return to form, having not seen the second one, for the series. I thought that it did enough different and re reframed a lot of the first movie, but it also felt like it was coming out of nowhere. Yes. I didn't like, and I'm in sequels in general, like I'm not a big fan of, Oh, I have this friend that we didn't mention in the first one. And now he's like the main character of the movie. And that's what this movie kind of hinged on. Well, except actually all these characters are in the first. Movie. Is Lee J Cobb in the first? They're just movie? played by different actors. George C. Scott. Yeah. Okay, I, they're just I, they just well, recast them, but they're all the same characters from the first film. Oh, I didn't know that. I thought he was yeah. since it's such a big actor. I was kind of like, oh, I guess they just made this up for the uh, for the for the new movie that he had a friend. But what what does that friend do in the movie in The Exorcist? I don't even remember him. Who the cop? 
the cop, Lee J. Cobb's character. George C. Scott, yes. He's Lee J. Cobb in the first film. Is he really? Wait a second. Wait a second. This is really funny because I always confuse those two guys. So this just (laughs) added a new layer of confusion. And during this movie, I was like, oh, that's Lee J. Cobb from 12 Angry Men. And I was like, oh, wait, no, it's George T. Scott from from Dr. Strangelove. And now you're telling me that Lee J. Cobb played the role in the first movie? Yeah, so in the first movie, the the director of Reagan's mom's film dies, is murdered by the demon or by Reagan, but we don't really see exactly how. He's the first one to fall down the stairs. And about halfway through the movie, Lieutenant Kinderman comes in to investigate that killing, played by Lee J. Cobb. He is um, a supporting character in that film. Not a major character, but he has several scenes. Wow, okay. I should have watched The Exorcist before watching this. (laughs) Father Dyer... Uh, uh, Ed Flanders in this movie, uh, Kinderman's friend, is also in that film, played by a different character, played by William O'Malley. Okay. And he's like he's like Karis's confidant in a few scenes. Well, wait a second. This is uh, this is a real guy, William O'Malley. William O'Malley was the actor in the first film who played Father Dyer. And uh, he was also a real priest. Was he really? I didn't know that. This is true. William O'Malley. I'm looking at his Wikipedia page. He is. Uh, he was. Uh, he is a Jesuit uh, priest. Uh, he uh, was best known for his portrayal of Father Dyer on The Exorcist, oh, um, wow. for which he was also a technical advisor. He was the, according to a source, he was the first Catholic priest to play a priest in a commercial motion picture. Oh. Um, That's an interesting fact. But they didn't get him in for the second movie or the third movie. Well, there are other things here on this Wikipedia page. I don't oh, all right, we're gonna. To- table this for the Barrett Reads Wikipedia Pages podcast, and what I wanted to just say is it's 15 years later after The Exorcist 1. Yes. So, you're dragging people in for Exorcist 3, which and is... And Lee J. Cobb had died at that point. So oh, he, he had died. Dead. Okay. Yeah. So, they couldn't yes. bring him back. So, yeah, there's... I, I guess I was just a little confused because I thought, like, okay, they made up some new characters to fit this movie. But you're telling no, me they're, yeah. they're, like, serious about this. They're, they're using real characters from the first movie. So to understand this movie in context, you have to talk about William Peter Blatty. Who's the director? He's the director of the film, but he is first and foremost a novelist. Okay. He writes the novel The Exorcist in 1971. It was a huge smash hit book, bestseller. He's hired to adapt his own novel into the screenplay for the movie The Exorcist, for which he wins the Oscar for Best Screenplay. Um, And it's also the first horror film ever nominated for Best Picture. So that breaks him into Hollywood. Exorcist is also the highest grossing film of 73. So he goes from being a novelist with a few well-regarded novels and one smash hit to like a major Hollywood power player with one film. Mm. In 1980, he directs his first movie. It's called The Ninth Configuration. It's a commercial flop, but it's a critical success. It won uh, Golden Globes for its writing, beating out movies like The Elephant Man and Ordinary People and Raging Bull. So he's got a little pedigree. But while he is exploring other avenues of his career, the studio makes Exorcist 2, and it's a huge bomb. Blatty has no involvement in it, but the film is hated and a huge commercial failure. And so Blatty, on his own, writes a sequel novel in 1983 called Legion. It has no exorcism in it. It's not about the exorcist at all. It's just about a separate case with the same character of Kinderman, who was a much bigger character in the exorcist novel than he was in the movie. Okay. Morgan Creek, who we've talked about in the Nightbreed episode, production company, gets Exorcist 3 off the ground, and they bring back Blatty with the idea that Friedkin would direct. They want to repeat the success of the first film. Friedkin uh, eventually leaves because of disagreements with Blatty. They try to bring on John Carpenter, 
But he and Blatty also disagree, particularly about the ending, which in the original script is a, um, a little bit more anticlimactic, which we're going to talk about in a second. But eventually it gets off the ground with Blatty taking on the directorial role himself. So this was his sequel to the novel that the movie The Exorcist was based off of, that he then adapted into his own movie that he didn't even want to call The Exorcist. He just wanted to call Legion. It's not really a sequel to the movie The Exorcist. But it is. But it is. It just gets there in a roundabout way. Yeah, by name alone, though. I mean, there are other films that have done that and the, that have kind of used the... I'm trying to... I wish I could think of an example off the bat. That would be impressive. But I uh, like that have used the... Either the motif or the theme or even the name itself, and they have nothing really virtually to do with the rest of the trilogy. I mean, I guess you could point to like Troll 2, but I wish right. I could think of a more serious example. Yeah, they just kind of take the name of it and just make a new thing, but they want you to come in with it. Just for the commercial is, sake of it. I'd say this is a pretty connected to the first movie like it's it's all about how yeah, the father Karras is locked up and right it's die. really the father Karras connection yeah. that makes it the only thing i can think about that's sort of similar to this is when michael crichton writes jurassic park and then they demand a sequel because the film is so successful so he writes his sequel book as a sequel to the movie and not the book that he had written where like characters who are dead are now alive. Like Ian Malcolm mm. dies in the book Jurassic Park, but because he right. survived the movie, he's then alive in the second book. I just want to put it on the record that I feel like I might've liked this movie more and like respect it more. If it wasn't a straight up exorcist sequel, if it was just right. a Legion movie, I think I'd sure. be a little bit more like, Whoa, this is a cool, weird, scary ass movie. But because you're coming in with the the exorcist knowledge, it sort of undercuts a lot of the mystery of the movie, which is like, how does the killer kill people? How does right. how does this thing happen? Right. But you kind of know because you saw the first movie, like, oh, it's the demon yeah. jumping between people's bodies. And I feel like that would have been a really cool reveal if you didn't kind of know already. But I know. because of that, I was a little bit like, okay, this is cool atmosphere, interesting stuff going on. But it, it just ultimately was a little bit, less than if it had been its own thing. So I, that's my take. I, I would really I would really like to discuss for first of all, I gotta tell you, I texted Nat dirt when I was watching the film. Um I had such an issue with and I was trying just to get through the first it's before Father Dyer dies. He, uh, he and uh, um uh, George C. Scott's character ha it's like any Law and Order episode where they have these little quips back and forth, my God, the amount of like one-liners that were shoot that was just shoehorned into every scene, were just like little back and forths, uh, like just ragging on each other. It, it it was like, how many jokes are you gonna get out in a in a minute? Of dialogue. They have a big bromance going. I, I gotta disagree. I love those dialogue exchanges. They are very writerly. They're very, like, prosaic. Yes. They aren't particularly what yeah. you'd expect out of a movie. But they're great, and the performances underplay them so effectively. I, I think this movie, one of the great strengths of it is how well it establishes the bromance between Kinderman and Dyer before Dyer dies 30 minutes into the movie. And Dyer is played by, remind me. Ed Flanders. Ed Flanders, because he looked, man, Ed Flanders was a dead ringer for, like, Gene Hackman. 
it wasn't, but Gene Hackman. But he does have um, a Hackman look and a kind of yes. a Hackman energy. Yeah, it, I I thought it was Hackman. I had to look it up, but um, yeah, the it's just him and Dyer, and they're just ragging on each other the whole time. And it, honestly, when Dyer died for me, it was a little bit of a breath of fresh air <laughs> thank because God I dead. knew, thank God, now they can't walk in and be like, hey. You got a you got a smudge on your shirt, huh? Yeah, surprise you can see. You got a bad eyesight. Oh yeah, I'm surprised you know that. You got the memory like an elephant. Yeah, I bet you got the body like an elephant. Yeah. Okay. All right. I, we get it. You're old friends, and you can. You're a bunch of old farts. No, I gotta I gotta I gotta defend this movie for our listeners who haven't seen it. You're underselling the 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 dialogue that they have. The scene they have in the restaurant, where we get a sense of the depth of their relationship, where Without even really talking about talking about it, Dyer susses out that there's been this horrible crime that Kinderman was a witness to, and they have to kind of unpack the emotional trauma of being both a cop and a priest and being faced with an unfeeling and oftentimes evil and cruel world as the representatives of the institutions that are supposed to protect people from that, but are totally inadequate to face the magnitude of of the problem. I think these guys, look, I'm watching them at the diner. I'm thinking, you know, maybe you guys, maybe you guys could have solved the crime, you know, 20 jokes ago <laughs> if you had stuck to the topic at hand. Right. You- <laughs> Barrett, how, tell me truthfully, how did you feel about the carp monologue? <laughs> what am I supposed to feel about it? I mean, I don't know. I mean... Eh. Here's the deal. Here's the deal. I think that, yes, they are old farts. And, yes, they're kind of annoying old guys. But that's fine because that's who they're playing. They're these annoying old guys who do quips to each other, which is great. But what I wanted to say is that I feel like this movie's atmosphere is one of the more modern atmospheres we've seen in a 1990 movie. It's really bridging the gap between the 80s and now to me and i was feeling so much of like prestige tv in this movie like true detective and like all those kinds of shows that are like totally taking the vibe that this movie made and expanding upon it and it's different than the exorcist one which is a little bit more of like a almost like documentary weird way in a way from what i remember of it like it's just sort of taking things as they're happening and showing them to you and when really crazy things happen it's crazy and it's unreal but this movie is going in a very different direction of like kind of dreamy and exorcist one has that too it has its dream sequences but this movie's kind of making the whole movie those dream sequences and like the murder scenes especially are amazing what's almost interesting about that is it's kind of the opposite right this movie doesn't show you the things while they happen and it's the way that it omits that that makes it so unnerving the the editing in this movie is fascinating yeah the way it enters and exits scenes so abruptly and startlingly where nothing has happened and you go to a scene where nothing else is happening and yet you feel this omnipresent dread yeah we don't get films now that that whose stars are two elderly men or so like we don't get films now where the stars of it or like where the the action focuses on two people like in their elder years i feel like that was such a very 60s 70s 80s kind of motif where now if you know if this movie was being made in 2020 
you know, this would be Patrick Wilson in The Conjuring. Or something. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it would true. Be... Every movie now has to be like hot guys. And right. I actually think it's critical to a lot of this movie's thematic pretensions that these are two men and ultimately one man facing his mortality and having to confront like his his spiritual right. beliefs about what that means. He is a man who is much closer to death than uh, uh, he was in the first movie. And that only exists in subtext, but is absolutely critical to his character. But I buy it more because he, than I buy Patrick Wilson, even though I think he did a great job in like, like something like the country, because there is that like life experience of someone, you know, you look at George C. Scott and you're like, you believe it automatically that he's, a guy with, you know, a history, and he can he can weigh in on these things, and he has some perspective. He's seen some um, shit, and he's seen some shit. And look, even though there are, uh, I would say, twelve or so, so moments in the film where he goes, I, and you go, yikes! He took it to a ten. <laughs> you don't hire George C. Scott if you don't want him to go to a ten. Right? Yeah. If it had been Lee J. Cobb, would he have been like a hundred in this movie? <laughs> he would have been, been like Lee J. Cobb, eighty-five-year-old cop doing <laughs> investigating crimes. Anyway, I feel yeah. like we kind of need to abandon the structure just because we went on so many random tangents. Are there anything? Are there any specific moments and actors we want to talk about? Because I don't think we should go through the plot at this point. There are a bunch actually. The first one we have to talk about is the dream sequence because it's the only part of the movie that I think doesn't work until it does work. Spoiler alert, I love this movie. This is the first time I've ever seen it. I thought it was incredible. Yeah. I, I honestly think it's one of my all-time favorite horror films. And there's only one part of it that didn't work for me, and that's this utterly bizarre dream sequence that Georgie Scott has, where he's walking through heaven, and it's populated with, like, celebrities. There's, Fabio. like, Fabio, Fabio and Patrick heaven. Ewing, the, the, the basketball player, and Samuel Jackson is there, but his voice is dubbed over by somebody else. Why do you think that happened, by the way? Do you think that I like, have no they didn't idea. like his voice and they changed it? Do you think Samuel Jackson at this point has, like, bought everything the voice dubber owns and ruined their life? He's like, <laughs> that's what you get for dubbing my voice, goddammit. I would love to sit down with Blatty and just talk about this one scene. Why did he cast these people? Why is it so long? I think the ending is really quite effective because this is before Dyer's death, but the scene ends with George C. Scott approaching him and seeing that his head has been stapled back on, just yeah. like the other victims of the Gemini and killer that we see in the dream sequence. You know he's dead at that point. Yeah. It's, it's very chilling. I love that it's, dream it sequence. Is. The whole thing was cool. I was like, wow, here's another sequel that's just going crazy. It's going nuts. And you never see that with sequels, you know? Sequels are always trying to recapture the magic of the first movie. They're never trying to, like just do something weird and new and exciting. And I loved seeing this weird ass shit. Like the, the dream in the exorcist one was him running down the street and now <laughs> it's heaven with Fabio. Like, cool. <laughs> Fabio's <laughs> an angel, man. Yeah. Uh, so I was into it, but it was, it was interesting. Uh, the film it's, I did we, can we discuss, I mean, I don't know if we want to go there, but can we discuss the, uh, the Jeffrey Dahmer connection? I was going to save that for the legacy section at the end. Why don't we do that then? Yeah, yes. we definitely should talk about it, though, because I think it's a very interesting and odd fact about the film. What about Chucky? <laughs> Our boy Brad Dourif. Brad Dourif? Brad! And a re-emergence re of the dude who died at the end of The Exorcist. He's also Jason Miller here. playing yeah. Father Karras again. Interesting idea there where he changes 
form and you're not really sure if he actually changed or if like what is yeah. going on in that room but it's cool georgie scott says he only ever sees karis but okay. we see brad deriff instead as the gemini killer so what was up with that did they just think that people wouldn't get that he was actually the Gemini killer. Did they just not, did that guy not want to do all the acting for it? Cause obviously Brad Drift is amazing. So of course. I'm happy he's in the movie. I think they, I think it's the, it is also the, obviously the, uh, uh, excuse me. The resemblance is very strong, uh, between Brad Drift and, and Jason Miller, who by the way was, is, uh, much more regarded, I guess, for his, uh, for being a playwright than a than an actor, but Jason Miller, yeah, I mean, you do wonder why he's not just in why it. Why isn't he himself. just doing it like they did with right. Reagan in the first movie? I don't think it has anything to do with confusing the audience or like making it clear to the audience because it's more confusing yeah, to have him change without the characters acknowledging it. I think it's 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 more about this exploration of of evil being many faced, multifaceted, uh, ever changing. And I think it's also because they wanted the Gemini killer to be a very distinct part of Karis's personality. And it's not fair to say that, that the kid does everything in The Exorcist, because that's not true. There's a puppet. There's a voice actress. It, it really is like not all the same person delivering that But it's that not doing this right. thing where, oh, it's not what it is. Like, everything is what it is yeah. in the movie. It's it's not as as avant-garde. It's not as as symbolic as this. For reference, for anyone that hasn't watched Exorcist 3, by the way, there's a scene where George C. Scott walks into a prison cell and he's talking to the guy from the first movie who's still alive and then he, he changes randomly into a different person and it's not yeah. mentioned at all. He's a killer that's inhabiting the body of Father Karras. But when the killer speaks, it's a new body that we are seeing. So can anyway. can I just mention? Uh, can I just mention randomly, really quick, that uh, he was uh, J- that Jason Miller, Father Karras, was uh, was offered the lead role in Taxi Driver, Ooh. but turned it down. He would have been pretty good in that movie, I bet. Yeah, I like Miller a lot. I will say, maybe it's just the characters as written, but he is nowhere near as captivating as Brad Dourif is in this movie. Brad Dourif, no. is phenomenal in this film yeah let's talk about brad drift because his career is so interesting and because he's going to show up in two of these movies his first film role is one flew over the cuckoo's nest billy bibbit where he plays billy the really really disturbed patient there it's an incredible role right nominated for an oscar a, a tremendous performance and that's his first movie and he follows it up with some pretty strong performances uh he's like the third lead in eyes of laura mars which is a pretty good film. And then he's the lead of Wise Blood, um, a, a late John Huston film that I really like. But something happens between then and now where he has gone from being one of the most fascinating future leading men of Hollywood to a supporting player in horror films. And I think it is the one-two punch of Heaven's Gate and Dune back-to-back. Right. He is third build in both of those movies, and they are both huge tremendous bombs yep that'll do it and he basically never really like he still shows up in interesting movies from time to time but that was the end of him like in his trajectory towards leading man his only leading roles from then on out are like the later child's play films where chucky becomes the lead and he's just the voice right and he's just the voice though he also plays when there are sometimes we see the the killer that inhabits chucky's body and and he plays that oh nice 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 charles lee ray i think is his name oh we'll get there Hey, don't forget he was in Blue Velvet. 
It's true. That that is sort of like in this period where he's transitioning <laughs> to being more of a supporting player in interesting but often often horror or genre films. It's um, it's weird. It's like he it, it there are three stages of his career. It's like Cuckoo's Nest, Chucky, Lord of the Rings. Lord of the Rings. God, right. one of my favorite things about Lord of the Rings is that it like it 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 took all of these great actors who had been like stuck in genre films that that Peter right. Jackson loved and he brought them into it even though they wouldn't have been obvious picks and Brad Dourif's a great example of that. Yeah, maybe there's something to my theory about Lord of the Rings, huh? <laughs> well, when would we have seen Bernard Bernard Hill? Right. Again, we're, or, we're uh, not uh, for a look. Carl Urban, right? Like who was like playing heavies in in right. movies. And or or Nat's favorite actress, Miranda Otto. <laughs> when would we have seen She's my favorite. When would we have seen her? So yeah. he's amazing in this movie, and there's some cool kills in this movie. I loved the bodies. Yeah, what do you guys think of that murder weapon? The spring-activated, uh, like, bone snipper. Very scary. scary. That scene with the nurse is, like, a really famous scene. I've definitely seen that in, like, best jump scares of all time compilation. I, I think it is the greatest jump scare of all time, because even though I had also seen that many times and knew it was coming, it still got me. Yeah. Because the pacing of that scene is so deliberate and so well set up. Yes. Where you're like, I know it's going to happen. I know it's going to happen. <laughs> God, maybe it's not going to happen. Maybe it's like a later scene. And Ooh. just when you start thinking you're safe. Well, it reminded me very much of like uh, Wait Until Dark. Kind of, it was that kind of a jump scare. Oh, totally. Where you, you see the person walking, you're like, oh, something's coming. Something's coming. And then it does. But it's just so good. I love that instead of it being like a close up, it's like super wide. And you just see this yes. crazy, like, whoop, like, what the Which hell? Which only is makes that? it scarier. Yeah. And it also just like the narrative of the sequence is also really terrifying where she hears these sounds, she goes to these different places. It's basically not possible for that to happen and then it happens it really right. plays with your your perception of the scene she closes the door and then without opening the door the person walks yeah through. it's just crazy um and in this movie has a lot of cool little things that are creepy like that like there's weird jesus faces that are smiling and yeah it does a really good the job statues. of having that creepy atmosphere um do you do you think that the after we saw like uh louise fletcher win for nurse ratchet do you I, there was something in these nurses' performances where they were really. Tri- I don't know this nurse. Care? What's her name? The actress who plays her. Her name uh, is but- Nancy Fisher. And honestly, I don't know her from anything else. Sorry, just Nancy. Yeah, Fish. Nancy Fish. Nancy Fish. Yeah, and there's something about her where she's like, she seems like she's trying to do a ratchet kind of a thing. I don't know. Maybe that's just the only reference point I have. Well, she's being telegraphed to us as someone who has been possessed. Right. Like she, every scene she's in screams, this person is evil. She does that weird thing <laughs> with her hand that we see as like coded for like being possessed. Mm. Um, and every, she just puts you on edge the whole time, but it's never right. confirmed. We never see her act. Yeah. We do not know if she is free and the movie is populated with creepy old women. Clearly for some reason, William Blatty thinks old wrinkly ladies are terrifying. Well, he had to go to the complete opposite direction of the first movie. So now we got old possessed people. So right. uh, let's speed through this movie. Um, we can, I think we can skip right to the end. The end. To the yeah, that's, just, uh, that's all I wanted to say. The exorcism is pretty dope. It's awesome. But it's also entirely a reshoot. Oh, the original ending of the movie that was shot and screened to test audiences after Kinderman races home and saves his family 
from the Gemini killer. He returns to the cell and just executes Karis. Oh, wow. And that's the end of the movie. But they screen this and the head of Morgan Creek says, you've just made a movie called The Exorcist 3 in which there are no exorcisms. I think the head of Morgan <laughs> Creek was right. They needed something. They, they force him to reshoot it. The father morning stuff is all added. Like that scene earlier with him, with the bird, uh, the dialogue at Georgetown between, uh, 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 what is his name? Father. Dyer? No, Father Canavan, the, the elderly, like the, oh, the, the other yes, priest. Yes. Um, that's all added where he's talking about Father Morning. And I respect what Blatty was going for with that ending, which would have been a very cold and alienating and difficult and challenging ending that would have been pretty thematically resonant. But this ending is also so cathartic and exhilarating when we have been marinating in tension for so long to get to have this big boisterous finale is great but it also works on a character level because that final monologue that kinderman gives really coalesces his character um and really brings it full circle yeah that's a cool monologue and it also speaks to the movie's themes about you know uh, living in a world of evil and having to confront that day after day and what that does to somebody in a way that isn't quite there in the rest of the text of the film. Yeah. And snakes and fire. Really cool. Really cool. I love that we just cut to a wide shot and all of a sudden the floor is on fire and there's a bunch of snakes. Yeah, because why not? This is a crazy-ass movie. Let's talk legacy. Should we just keep going? Shall we? Barry, you want to mention uh, the the connection? The the, the Dahmer connection? Someday we'll find it. The Dahmer connection. I'm sorry. Um, uh... (laughs) What I want to mention is uh, the uh, that uh, you know I look we all get our information from Wikipedia, but that uh, the film apparently was um, a, a favorite of Jeffrey Dahmer, and um, that Dahmer would uh, show his victims um, the film before oh uh, killing them, and. Uh, Dahmer's final victim, uh, or excuse me, Dahmer's final attempted victim, Tracy Edwards, testified that Dahmer would rock back and forth while chanting at various times, and that he especially enjoyed a sequence uh, when Karis is possessed. He also purchased uh, yellow contact lenses to uh, resemble Miller. Also, re- trying, he was also trying to emulate Emperor Palpatine. Oh. But uh, basically, he, uh, he identified with the Gemini killer. Weirdly, it's a testament to this film's depiction of evil where it is, uh, um, it, it, it doesn't feel fake. Yeah, right? this feels like, like an evil movie. This feels like an evil yeah. movie. He was based on the Zodiac Killer. Yeah, obviously. but yeah. and he is heightened. Like the Gemini Killer character is a really big character and he's claiming to be possessed by the devil. And yet the depiction of evil and the and the feeling that the movie creates in you the despair in the face of this corruption is a a really really resonant and powerful and i can see how it might have affected people with different attitudes in different ways i think what does it for me in this movie why it feels so evil is like in the face of these evil acts you're just seeing these like hard as nails guys just looking at these crime scenes and just being speechless. And you're just like, oh, if those bulldog greatest generation guys are freaked out, I'm definitely freaked out by all of this evil. This isn't 
Patrick Wilson freaking out at Evil. This right. is fucking Lee J. Cobb being like, George oh C. God. Scott. Or George C. Scott <laughs> being like, oh my God, Jesus Christ. Like, uh, I, love, I love that you said that because I wanted to mention his reaction to to seeing Father Dyer's death. Ugh. Brutal. The performance is so perfect there. It's great. The way he breaks and when he does it, when he sees his friend dead, is heartbreaking. I think that George C. Scott might be the greatest break actor of all time. Have you seen Hardcore? He has to I watch. Mean, yeah, that's an iconic scene. That's an iconic Dude. break. The only person who might beat him. Can you guess who I'm going to say? No. Uh, Lee J. Cobb, no. 12 Angry Men. Right. He breaks at the end of that movie. <laughs> now, he breaks. But listen, Big break there. Listen. <laughs> Don't you think there's something like nowadays, how many scenes of one guy going, what the fuck? You know, I'm not talking you know, about how those many... breaks. I'm talking about being overwhelmed with how horrible something is, Break. Sure. Not like, oh, I mean, shit, what the fuck is going on? I mean more just but, like, that's my daughter. Shut it up. My daughter. Shut it up. Like, he just goes fucking ape shit. It's so good. <laughs> it is good. He is good. It's just there is a campiness about him that I don't know if it was intentional. No, man. That's a that's a greatest generation member losing all his faith in humanity and there's nothing sadder than seeing that. I I don't disagree that like he goes so big and he does it in every movie. So that, like big. it's not hard to transplant him from a film like this into a film like Doctor Strange Love and he's just as funny in Doctor Strange Love as he is frightening and heartbreaking in this movie. But well, he's like a uh, Kevin McCarthy, if in uh, uh, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, you really reminded right. me of, of that. Turn your cars around; they're <laughs> invading. Right, quickly! They'll but get I you when you sleep. Yeah. In the best George C. Scott performances, he earns it. There he are does. times when he doesn't, but in this movie, given what he is facing, I buy it. I buy that it would be, it would bring a man to that point where that would be his reaction. Yeah. Goat right there let's go a little more legacy what do we got with the numbers game i'm assuming this movie didn't do very well it's a bunch of old farts telling quick <laughs> to each other and being sad budget was 11 million dollars uh it opens on august 17th to 9.3 million goes on to gross oh. 25 domestic okay so, so it made the money this back. one all right all right it does it does fine i mean the first exorcist was the highest grossing film of its year so it's certainly a disappointment but it it, it makes enough money and I really hope that people will go out and discover it because like I said, I really think this is one of the greatest horror films of all time. And the fact that I had never seen it before speaks to how hidden a gem it is. Now, Ben, do you think that this being three really hurt it? If this was two, what, what do you think? Yeah, I think I absolutely agree with that. I'm also with Nat where like, maybe this shouldn't even be pitched as an exorcist sequel. If you just call it Legion, like, but but it is. I mean, we have Father Karras. I mean, we yeah, have characters it's true. who are. You're you know, right. I mean, Damien. you need yeah. to be aware of I'm Father Karras and the things that happen. They could have taken ten minutes to write some some new material, but just keep the whole movie the same way. And I'm I think this movie would have done way better. It would have been like a cult classic. Like, what the fuck is this? This is an evil movie. Here's the thing, I love The Exorcist. I think it is very sure. effective as as a horror film. I think it is is one of the scariest movies ever. I think this is a better movie. Mm. I think this is a more challenging huh. and interesting film and uh, uh, maybe not quite as effective at like the base level of what a horror movie needs to do. I but... think it's too, I think it's too 
I, I think the legit scary stuff about The Exorcist, this got, uh, this got, this gets roped, uh, wrapped up too much in that mid '80s Freddy Krueger kind of uh, camp, for me. That that was my own. That's my my real criticism of it. Whereas The Exorcist, uh, the original, was like, there's nothing like this. This felt like I don't know all the tropes kind of mixed together and the campiness and the Father Dyer, um, George C. Scott connection. There's something about this that just feels more campy. Not that it's not effective. It's just, for me, it's not It's not as effective as the original. I think most people would agree with you, Barrett. Um, but I, I don't know. I was really, I was overwhelmed with how much I love this movie. While we're talking about campiness, let's talk about <laughs> Child's Play 2. Let's. <laughs> Which... My God, I can't believe we saved this one for last. <laughs> I know it's kind of a letdown it's because a huge we letdown. talked about at the top of the episode how uh, um, refreshing it was that these weren't rehashes of the first films. <laughs> and then we watch a movie that even if you haven't seen the first movie, you can tell is literally just a rehash <laughs> of the first film. I was happy I hadn't seen the first movie. I was like, I was oh, saying. good. I, I am not bored because I've already seen the first movie. I'm, I'm getting this for the first time. Okay. That said, I, I just want to mention this up top so people know we're getting. This movie is a tedious, dull, mostly unsuccessful film until the last 15 minutes, which are fucking awesome. And I love them so much. I just want to say... I will defend this movie because I'll even put it in a category with the other two movies. And I, I haven't seen the first Child's Play, so maybe it's just more of the same from the first one. But, like, I just love how how vile this movie is. It's so <laughs> terrible to, to humanity. Like, there's nothing quite like Chucky just, like, BDSMing people to death. and Swearing like, swearing like a sailor yeah. and hacking an adult with random implements and tying up a child like it's it's great you know you, it's exactly what you kind of want if you're in the mood for it i was worried that when i watched this knowing that how of it of its era it might be like i i, I almost thought the killer doll seemed as stuck in time as like the rapping granny which, <laughs> which if we if we remember from the 90s there was nothing there was people thought that was a real hoot to have a, a rapping granny, but like the killer doll, it, it was really fun once you allow yourself to either, I don't know, to betray either your first instincts about it or whatever your expectations are about it. When you just kind of take it for what it is, it's just a, you it's can just really a have a lot of fun. Yeah, it's just, you know, we don't need to get all philosophical with The Exorcist 3. We don't need to get all avant garde with Gremlins 2. We're just having a good time with Chucky. Right. I, I want to agree with you because when the movie does get to the point where it can just have fun with the concept of a killer doll, I'm on board. But it, the movie feels like it's burdened by so much legwork it has to do a lot of to set up its character dynamics and to basically repeat the same scenario as the first film. That I'm like, just get to the good stuff. Oh, you better not be talking about Kyle. Kyle? Like the, <laughs> the foster dad? Your favorite actor? No, Kyle's time? the foster sister. Oh, she's... Uh, the dad is yeah, Phil. I, I, do wish, I do wish the movie had only been 40 minutes long. Let's just I, go I from will kill say to this. kill to kill. It starts strong. Because Chucky being rebuilt is like the best conceit for the immortal slasher film villain sure. uh, of any of these series. 
We talked about in an earlier episode when Jason Voorhees gets reanimated by lightning striking oh, a yeah. fence post that's been impaled to him. Like, that's how sweaty that stuff got. This is perfect. He's a doll. He's already immortal. You just have to <laughs> polish him up, give him some new eyeballs and, and, and a new arm, and he's fine. Can I ask, as someone who hasn't seen the first one, is there anything to do with the corporation in the first movie? Or was that completely made up for this movie? No, you see it like that. The, the first movie definitely has a lot of fun with, like, the omnipresence of the toy, of the good guy doll. Okay. I don't think you do anything inside the company that makes company. it, but, like, you are aware that, like, this is a toy that is being mass-marketed and right. produced. Okay, okay. So they're going they're going crazy with it. It's classic and sequel Actually, stuff. I think the movie opens in the factory because you see Charles Lee Ray, like, die in the factory. Like, he, like, escapes into the factory okay. and then dies there. Blah, blah. And that's yeah. how he, like, gets in Chucky. Yeah, it's been a while since I've seen the first movie. I'll be honest; I might be misremembering some of that. But ba- what this movie basically boils down to is Chucky is just tracking down the poor child that he wanted to inhabit in the first movie. I got it immediately. I was like, "I'm, re- I'm here. Yeah. I get it all." He, his family died, and now Chucky's tracking him down. Do you think this is like seeing Hannibal without seeing Silence of the Lambs <laughs> or Red Dragon? <laughs> no, yes. it's not because. The first Child's Play movie is no great film. (laughs) Like, it's a perfectly fine, serviceable slasher movie with a pretty great conceit. Because there really is nothing scarier to a child than the idea that, like, your toys could be trying to kill you and nobody else will believe you. Let's talk about the little boy. And he's doing the second movie. I couldn't believe that they got this fucking kid to come back. He does, like, all of them. (laughs) What? Do you think this guy is messed up now? He's probably like thirty-eight years old now. Like, do you think? No, he's he doing runs okay? like a he's like a video right? production company. Okay. I think he's doing fine. He's doing fine. He's not traumatized. Do you think they took extra precaution to like protect him from the horribleness of this movie? Did he even see? The I don't movies? think so. The one thing I will say is that like all the foul language is all in voiceover. So like maybe he right. wasn't exposed to that part of it. I don't know. I think they probably would have. If I could imagine, I, I I feel like in order to get some of those scenes correct. And I know people do this a lot. You know, they would have people. On, they would actually have the person on on set with them. They'd have uh, Brad Dourif like doing the lines. I don't know. I've, you don't think it was like a PA over there being like, "I'm going to fucking how, kill you, kid." How can you get the same energy out of the out of the actors? I mean, it's gonna be all inconsistent. They do that sometimes. I don't know if they do it with big stars. I don't like. Know. I don't know if they do it. I doubt they had Brad Dourif like menacing this child next to. The, <laughs> I, can I just say? I think by the end of the movie. I'm glad he's doing fine and runs a video production company, but by, by the end of this movie, I was just imagining him. He looks so shell-shocked and ruined <laughs> yes. when he's killing Chucky at the end of this movie. He's just like, die, you fucking bastard. Like He does. He's got nothing inside anymore. The movie is so stupid. It's There's just kid getting into the foster home, meeting the girl who you know isn't going to die because they characterize her way too much, and then every other character is just an asshole, and they all die. And Chucky comes and kills them because he just wants to track the kid down, and he kills anyone that gets in his way, and that's literally the whole movie. It's just Chucky killing people randomly because they're in the way of him inhabiting the kid. And Chucky is a foul-mouthed asshole. It's great. (laughs) Can we talk about uh, uh, one of my favorite character actresses in this that I was so happy to see uh, and that would be Grace Zabriskie uh, who played um, uh, the foster uh, she played Grace Poole uh, 
the head of the, the foster, foster home. The head of the foster care. This is uh, now I've loved her for so long because she played Susan's mother on Seinfeld, and I always found her to be such a strange, quirky character actress. And this was like a weird little role for her. Um, and uh, when you th- like these movies are such a treasure trove. The three of them, the three of these films, were such a treasure trove of of like 80s 90s character actors and actresses. Right. And to see someone like this pop up was a lot of fun. It just brings you right back to that era. That's how way. I felt about uh Jenny Agutter who plays the foster mom Joanne. Right. Who's like the female lead in Logan's Run and American Werewolf in London. And uh just it's, it's so interesting to see her in this like matronly role. And like these days she's in like the Marvel movies as like the head of the security council or whatever. <laughs> Good career. Look at that. What were you going to say about Garrett Graham? Because he was a real, like, I know I've seen him in something, but I looked through his filmography and I really couldn't say what it was. Like, maybe it was the episodes of Star Trek he was on, and I'm just pulling a really specific memory of that. Garrett Graham was like an original uh, collaborator of Brian De Palma's. And in in, uh, one of my favorite films, Phantom of the Paradise, which is a very, like, it's like Rocky Horror meets Phantom of the Opera, you know, it, it, from the 1970s that Brian De Palma directed. I actually was in a stage version of it. Oh, really? Um, yeah. and It's like, it had, like a glam rock show, right? But it's like a glam Phantom rock show. Yeah, it's a Rocky Horror kind of a thing, but I think with like way better music by Paul Williams. But Garrett Graham is in it as this transvestite sing, rock and roll singer. And he does this kind of like, flamboyant caricature performance and but to see him you know where you might just kind of forget about him to see him pop up in more of a straight performance like this a more like playing the ultimate square playing the ultimate square where he was where before you saw him as like playing like wacky characters that was interesting to me when i saw him pop up in the credits i had no idea he was in it but yeah, Garrett Graham, very interesting character actor. Yeah, and as you mentioned, and then we have a uh, Christine Elise McCarthy from uh, in the and now she was in, I believe, a couple of Child's Play films. Uh, right? no, she's really just like photographs in the other movies. Okay, okay. She's not. She's not actually uh, uh, like a character in them, but she was on China Beach for a season or a few hey! episodes. Shout out Nancy. Yeah. I wonder if they've met. And uh, she had some recurring TV roles. She was in like Beverly Hills 90210 and ER for a while. Do we like her in this movie? I, I don't think I like her. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, she's fine. No, you know very what? Basic. I cut. Very safe performance. Not much going on nope. there. Not really a challenging performance for her. Not at all. Um, um, the, probably the hardest part of playing this role was showing up to set. But. Um, <laughs> But I think, you know, she did with it whatever it required. It was fine. We're not she's here charming. for any of that. We're here she's for the charming. sadomasochistic murder by Chucky. We're here for Chucky beating a teacher to death with a ruler. Not only beating people, but also psychologically torturing them before <laughs> he kills them. There are no quick kills other than the one guy at the end. Everyone is tormented and messed with. To a really terrible degree. And I think that's half the fun because Chucky is such a hater of all things humanity. So he's just torturing you before he kills you. The teacher. The teacher really gets it. Horribly so. 
did I snooze or something? But is there any major reaction to the death of the teacher that I no. must have missed? I, so that's so okay, good. So I didn't miss anything. But the rest of the film, I I kept thinking, um, a teacher at the school that your that your disturbed son goes to, um, was murdered mauled to death not just well, it's murdered the same day right so they haven't found her yet i know but you'd think there'd be some sort of there's some reaction. kind of passage of time something. something calls should be made out a teacher was found bludgeoned maybe to death. it was a friday and the rest of the day the rest <laughs> it was of the a weekend, holiday weekend rotting in there right right it was martin luther king jr weekend <laughs> and everyone was going home and they didn't have time yeah, no, but you th- I saw that and I thought, isn't anyone going to acknowledge, is this teacher just sitting there? She's dead. Murdered? Yeah. I don't know. I don't think in this universe we need to worry about stuff like that. Fine. I want to go back to something you just said, which is sort of like Chucky's sadomasochism, sadism, and uh, his personality, which I think has always been the appeal of these movies, because he's probably like the fourth or fifth most iconic slasher villain. Yeah. He's definitely like the ring behind Jason and uh, Michael Myers. Michael Myers and and, and Freddy. And Freddy. He's like number and four. And of those three, and then you, I mean, you could put like Pinhead up there too as for like iconic Chucky characters was like definitely that. present in like our 90s childhoods at like Hot Topic. Yeah. Like he was the, definitely around. That's where I spent most of my childhood, so sure. <laughs> so Michael Myers and Jason have no personality. Jason has a little bit of one, but it's it's all nonverbal, right? He's and they're not human beings. They're they are monsters, truly. No, they're just conduits for the violence. Exactly. Freddy Krueger has a personality, but he is very uh, um, he is like a cruel trickster god. Like he's not a human being at all. Chucky right. is like a human being who happens to be in a doll's body who likes killing people, but isn't necessarily great at it and is often frustrated and upset and like having human reactions to the terrible things that he's doing. And it's weirdly endearing, right? (laughs) Like he just, he exists as a person in a way that almost none of the other slasher characters do, even though he's a doll man. Yeah. It's so funny when he's just like, you screwed up my plan. God damn it. Like he's just like a terrible little man. (laughs) Like what the, it makes things worse. It makes things less endearing for me. I'm just like, I'm just watching right. a psychopath kill people. <laughs> but he's in a doll body, so it's okay. W- would you, dis- now if you had to pick one or the other, would you say, you can, you, only pick, you can only pick one, comedy or horror? Like what genre is this in? Yes. Oh, I'd say horror. It's like a slasher yeah, movie. I, this is solidly horror. The series gets more and more comedic, but... This movie is trying to get most of its thrills out of like the, the violence, violence and kills. And the, the suspense uh, I say people. it. I say it's comedy. I say I say it's parody in a way. Like I say, because look, I mean, you have this guy. Yes, the action, the murders are done realistically as they would be to make you believe it, which kind of heightens the comedy. But I don't know. I mean, I don't know that the the protagonist. You can't have the protagonist, or excuse me, you can't have the. Um, the, the villain of the film stumbling around and be like, ah, shit, I fucked up again. You know, like, before it's just a comedy. I mean, imagine if, I mean, you couldn't have, imagine The Conjuring, but, like, the ghosts were always, ah, shit, oh, oh, I slipped, oh, you, you know, like. everything up, you fucked up my plans. See, I disagree. The, there's a movie called Wolf Creek, 
that's about um, uh, a serial killer in Australia. And he is, like, very not good at being a serial killer. He's not bad, but he he is very human about, like, the way he goes about it, and he makes mistakes, and he misjudges things. And the movie doesn't play it for laughs at all, unlike this movie, which does play it for laughs. Yeah. Um, and he is all the scarier for it. Mm. He is so upsetting because he succeeds at brutalizing the characters in that movie despite his human failures. And he is so recognizably human beneath the the monster's choice to be a murderer. Mm. So something like that sounds a little more horror, whereas this, whereas Chucky, for me, at least has always seemed more uh, tongue-in-cheek or has always... Because, you know, if... if if he's going to crack jokes the whole film. I did like it when he says, how's it hanging, Phil? And then Sure. Yeah, I mean, that's fun. I mean, don't, but don't you think that this is, at its core, a comedy or a parody thing? I mean, like scary movie. Let's look at Chucky's many deaths in this fantastic climax in in the Toy Factory. Those aren't really played for laughs, right? They easily could be. Imagine he comes out of that, 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 limb attaching machine and now he's just got a bunch of extra limbs and he's moving all funny that would be funny it's not he's like a horrible mutated zombie um and becomes more distressing uh the more badly he is mutilated (laughs) that's definitely played for horror mostly but but every time they kill him or something, or every time they're, they're stapling him to, see, you know, he's going, oh, 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 <laughs> and, and you're like, you know, you're not, you don't have the velociraptors in Jurassic Park going, <laughs> you know, like just fumbling Do around. Do you think there's a direct line the- from like Friday the Thirteenth to Child's Play, The Scream, which is sort of a lot harder to define versus comedy versus horror? Like that's sort of when it became meta. I don't think it has to really be either. I just. It, it, it always seems like if it's not straight horror, then it's comedy to me. It, I don't know. Interesting. This certainly this this series, by the very nature of its premise involving a killer doll, has always leaned heavily into the comedy side of horror. And the two are related. And there have been many funny films that are ostensibly horror films. And there have been many comedies that are actually horrifying when you look at them. Uh, There is a correlation between seeing something that does not fit into our worldview and finding it either horrifying or funny. Yeah, right. I I just want to say a few more things about the climax, which I really like. It saved the movie for me. One, what a perfect setting uh, uh, for for the climax. You can see that they are probably working with a slightly larger budget than the first film because we get this huge factory with lots of Chucky dolls and the fancy machinery. Uh, I love the knife arm. And just the, the concept <laughs> of like him becoming human underneath the plastic yeah, and if, ripping off his plastic hand and it's all had, flesh and blood. If he had kept alive, would he have become like a weird little man-child? Maybe. Unclear. I guess so. He always remains like mostly a toy yeah. plastic man. Also, I was surprised we didn't see him hide in a box and scare the shit out of people. Ooh. I know. I was sort of expecting that, but then I kind of appreciated that they didn't go there. Mm. Yeah. I liked all the stuff with the machinery more than anything that would have involved like there being other Chucky dolls. Right. Can I just say, can I just say the poor freaking worker who <laughs> is just you look, I, I I thought about him. I watched uh Child's Play first and even as I was watching Exorcist 3 
and and Gremlins two. <laughs> I'm I, I would occasionally just think back to the poor factory worker. He's there. It's like three a.m. He's making dolls. His <laughs> wife's prob his wife's probably calling him. When are you coming home? And he's just and he's just miserable. And he gets <laughs> two doll eyes yeah. shoved into his socket for nothing. He's doing nothing for, to Chucky. He's such a casualty of this situation. Why he didn't Chucky deserve have, it. He could have also killed that truck driver who assaulted the girl. Right. And he could have also killed that cop who got up in her business, called her sweetheart. Like, give me some more kills, man. No, it's only the poor guy <laughs> doing quality control at the old Lucky Toy Factory, whatever. He gets caught in the crossfire. Oh, Nat, in our crime triple feature, you said that you were like a connoisseur of like mob hits. I'm definitely a connoisseur of slasher kills. This one is is an all-timer for me. Yeah, that's a good one. That's a great kill. The eyeballs. Great kill. Yeah, it's so squishy. What What's <laughs> up with the legacy of this movie? How'd it do? I just want to mention that this got the, the rare zero stars from Gene Siskel, who hated <laughs> this movie. I think a lot of people did. I think that the violence and profanity around children was a problem for a lot of people in 1990. <laughs> I, I feel like we've come up. a long way. It's pretty messed up, let's be honest. Budget, $13 million. I gotta say, you can tell in the puppetry of Chucky that this movie cost a fifth of Gremlins 2. He is not nearly as impressive a puppet as those are, although he's still quite good. Yeah, yeah. But I, it's, I him. it's more uh, Brad DeRiff's vocal performance, I think, than the physical performance of the doll that makes the character work. Yeah, one thing I wanted to discuss, just because I, I come from the animation world, I do a lot of um, Japanese anime dubbing, and I do also a lot of like uh, prelay, where I record first, then they animate to my voice. And I and I was wondering as I'm watching this, you know, are uh, what Brad Dourif is doing is so specific. I'm wondering what was coming first, in a way, because some of his some of his choices just. As a voice actor, you're wondering, like, those really inform the animation, and sure. that would inform the action of the scene. I'm wondering, he had to, I mean, I know we talked about this before, but he, he would have had to be on set, or, or something would have had to be pre-recorded in some capacity in order to get that very specific visceral response out of the other actors. You're, you're right, and there is, like, a, a physical element to the puppet performance that matches his vocals in a way. That I is very they interesting. First, they must have. I wouldn't be surprised. I, I, I feel like, and again, it's been a while since I've seen the first movie, but I feel like Chucky is a more animated character in this film than in the first one. And I wonder if, as the series went on, they collaborated more with Brad before the filming, so that they could shape the character to be something that was like sort of a, a combined vocal and physical performance. Was this more? Uh, was this more CGI than puppetry? I guess, I guess to create There's, the effects. Of as far as I know, no CGI in this film. I mean, okay. in 1990, CGI is just barely starting to show up in movies. Right. We've talked about a few prominent uses of it. They're not at a point here where they would use like, like, like CGI to like smooth or augment things because doing a single CGI shot was so expensive. Like if something was going to be CGI, it was going to be all CGI. So I don't think there's really any in this movie. Right, yeah, yeah. I bet they recorded him and then they had to match it on the set. There's no way that he's, like, making it work. Like, because his performance is so strong. I feel like it would, yeah. he'd be, like, shoehorned into not doing as good of a performance if he had to match whatever the puppet was doing. 
So anyway, we don't know. Budget of $13 million, Opens on November 9th. Kind of an odd release date after Halloween. Uh, I'm not 100% sure why that would have been. It opens to $10.7 million, Goes on to gross $27 million domestic, 34 worldwide. So pretty reasonable hit. Of, of all of them, it's the most profitable film in terms of the, the film's legs. And, and I think uh, they would have been reasonably pleased. And, and the series continues to this very day. I'm sorry. I just want to interject. One thing is that I just I'm reading um, online, uh, according to the, uh, IMDb, all of Brad Dourif's voiceover work for Chucky was recorded in advance yeah. uh-huh. so they could match up Chucky's mouth with the words. Because of this, Dourif rarely appeared on set. Instead, recordings of his voice would be played back for Alex Vincent, the child to act opposite of. Great. Very nice. There we go. Traumatizing. Good, good, good. Traumatizing. Research. Yes. So what did we learn here? We got to wrap up. We've been going for a long time. Yeah, uh, I'm going to have to cut this down a little bit. We, uh, we watched three movies that I think form a perfect triangle of, <laughs> of horror movies. <laughs> the most terrifying shape. Where we had the super bone chilling and cool, crisp Exorcist 3. We had, but also dreamy. We had the very basic bullshit of Child's Play 2. And we had the avant-garde surrealism and fourth wall breaking of gremlins 2 i think it's a nice little trifecta it was it really was like watching these three films together was nowhere near as tedious as the sequel spectacular or even the crime triple feature these three movies were 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 wonderfully diverse yeah all those kind of blended together these were all different yeah no um I, i i thought these were an interesting pairing if not only for the the brad dourif I wish he had shown up in Gremlins. That would have been cool. That would have been nice. But hey, we did get Christopher Lee in Gremlins, who was Sauron to a Brad there you Durif, go. Worm Tongue. So there the you go. The Six Degrees of oh. Brad Dourif. Were there any other crossovers from Gremlins and the other two movies? I feel like there may have been, but maybe I'm wrong. Uh, I guess not. Gremlins was in a vacuum. No. I don't know. I don't know if the Stantons were in all three. <laughs> they should have been. The Stantons and The Exorcist. Uh, <laughs> so. In terms of 90s themes, I'd say these are all over the place, you know? <laughs> I, I, the only really obvious one is all the stuff we saw in Gremlins, the Trump stuff and the New York City stuff, and even that's like sure. kind of tangential. But these movies are very, like, removed. I guess maybe that's part of the horror genre. It's like they're kind of removed from commenting on, like, what the hell is going on in society at the time. They can kind of just be horrifying on a human level. The right. one thing that I sort of noticed was that all three of these movies – um, are kind of a break from formula. Two of them more than the uh, the third. But considering like how in the 80s the slasher film was horror cinema, and there were so many Friday the 13th imitators, and all of them were the same, save for whatever stupid little gimmick they worked in there, these movies really push things in different directions. I think you can see that that sense of sort of, again, like new voices, new stories being told that we've talked about in other films. Even Child's Play? Not Child's Play. <laughs> so Exorcist and, and Gremlins. I mean, even Child's Play pushes the slasher genre into new avenues. I'll buy it. I'll buy it. Uh, so yeah, Good. that's our horror bar bar. Woohoo! Horror it? or borer? What do we think? <laughs> uh, Were they horrible? Were they boreable? Wait, bore like bearable? Or no, bore-able? like were they whoring or boring? Boring. Like whoring themselves out? <laughs> what? It doesn't work. It's the worst wordplay I've ever heard. Okay, <laughs> let's let's call the Stantons and have them come up with something. All right. I say horrors. 
They were horrors, not bores. They were horrible. Barrett, thank you for coming and being a guest. Of course. You're an amazing voice artist, and maybe you could get that Chucky when Brad retires. Yeah, maybe. Or the- hey, look at me. I'm a doll. Hey, I'm going to fuck your mom. <laughs> hey, okay. <laughs> Consider that his audition, uh, whatever company made that movie. Follow us on social media at BTTMPod on Instagram and Twitter, BTTMPod at gmail.com. Still waiting for that email. Somebody write me an email. I will be so happy to see it. No, we get tons of emails. Just be another one. Fake it till you make it, Ben. Right, right. You don't have to be at the- <laughs> And also, shout out to your generous sponsors, Teddy Grimm's, right? <laughs> wink, wink. Shout Factory. They released an awesome version, a director's cut of uh, Exorcist 3 that included a, a work print uh, director's cut of Blatty's preferred version of the film. Um, so Shout Factory, sponsor us. That would be a conflict of interest. Thank you, Andy Gagnon, for our music. Yeah. Thank you, Barrett, for joining us. Director's cut. What if the director's a moil? All right, you can. we can end the show Oh, now. my God. Okay. All right. We're back to the movies. This has been Barrett, Nat, and Ben. And we'll see you next week when we go back to the movies. Barrett, give us a little more Chucky before we leave while the music plays. Ah, It's me, (laughs) Chucky. Ah, I'm going to fuck your dog. (laughs) Look at me. I'm a doll. I got a dick. I got a working dick. (laughs) Don't cut this out. Could we intellectualize and be like, child's play is so, you know, it's so formulaic that it transcends formula. It, it, it really makes you think, you know, who is really the child in the film? Is it Chucky is or it, is it the child? Or, or perhaps it is those that would ordinarily be considered the adults, <laughs> uh, who maybe they are well, the because children. The adults don't believe Chucky's real. Until right. It's it's only it's only the children who see uh, who see the who, who sees the world for for what it really is. Mm. And, and so maybe 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 it is saying that the the children we should be we should be listening to the children. <laughs>